Hello, and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. With me today on the show is Iskar Jarek. How are you doing today, buddy? I'm good. I'm, I'm excited for this one. Yeah, it's a special episode. We just finished our read-through of a sale, which kind of puts a pin on our discussions of the Malazan Empire miniseries. So we are delighted today to welcome the author of those books, Ian Cameron Esselman, to the show. Hello, welcome. How are you doing? Hello. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. It's fantastic to meet you guys. Yeah, of course. The pleasure's ours. Hundred percent. So uh, let's 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 hop into it. You know, um, I would just be curious. You know, when you're reading, when you're watching a movie, when you're watching TV, you know, what makes you think like this is a great story? Well, I think um, if it touches my emotions, um, mostly, I think it really has to reach inside and touch something inside you, and that's what makes it. Uh, memorable and and uh, worthwhile i think that's the first most important thing to really to catch you mm, kind of draw you into it that way nice just a little interested so we were talking a bit before we got on the mic about i asked you you had spent some time in japan which is where i'm at now um and you were saying you were traveling around southeast asia were you traveling for work uh well i was working i was teaching english at a university in bangkok Whenever I had time off, um, my wife and I, we would uh, immediately venture forth wherever we could, travel through Cambodia, Laos, and then down Malaysia, Indonesia. And then when we finished up, we went and spent some time in India as well. And then, like I said, I accepted a contract to uh, teach English in uh, Japan. Do you feel like those experiences influenced your writing? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had traveled through... Um, Central America as well, doing uh, visiting archaeological sites. Mm-hmm. I've always enjoyed travel, and I really think it's fantastic. It's something anyone should do. Uh, and I think that uh, that exposure and um, sort of trying to soak all that up as, as best I could uh, really had an influence. Yeah, because I wondered, and and actually people in, in the Discord were asking about, you know, like martial arts and stuff, because people who, you know, like the whole Segula stuff wonder where some of that stuff comes from. Oh, when I came back to, to work here in, in the U.S., um, I did, I, my boys got interested in Taekwondo, and so I studied Taekwondo for many years with them. Uh, but I'm a bit older, so I sl- slid over to... Um, the tradition of Japanese swordsmanship, which is Iaido, uh, which is mm. traditional samurai swordsmanship. And I've done that for a number of years. Oh, wow. It's not, yeah, it's, that's... not, not as hard on the joints. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Do you ever try any kendo too? No, never kendo. Mm. Kendo is, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's, of course, it's much more um, active and aggressive. And I was more interested in the, by that time, I was more interested in the philo- philosophical side of swordsmanship in out of that tradition hmm. and is that from living in japan or you're just that was just appealed to you because your kids are doing a jujitsu or <laughs> yeah um my reading and my interests before um yeah um i was always attracted to that um and i really enjoyed my time in, in japan the the um the aesthetic and all the rest uh, really appeals to me personally now I know uh, I believe Jakuruku is based on. It's eluding me. I want to say 
parts of it parts of it are sort of a, a Southeast Asian jungle region you could call yeah kind of a vague amalgamation or a type of inspiration inspiration uh, and then another part is more of a step sort of with tribes more of sort of a horse con tribes um, mm. and uh, there's, there's a mix yeah well I only ask because you know obviously you know we just read through these these first six and they really are take place across a variety of different stuff a lot of different settings a lot of different types of stories and I wonder how you kind of decide where you kind of want to go next and what kind of story you want to tackle, how much of it is based on geography, how much of it um, is based on, like, the characters. And I'm also curious because I have to imagine there's a commercial element to it. You know, of course, if you're writing about, you know, the backstory to some character that has been shown before, this thing that's more related you know, there's more of an appeal, so to speak, than if you just completely went off to a dis- distant constant continent, you know? So I wonder how do you kind of balance these things and how you ultimately make that decision? Well, of course, originally, uh, Steve and I had split things up, sort of a list, and he had like 10 or so things that he wanted to do in the world, and I had 10 or so that I said I'd be interested in doing. So, and there was no, no actual overlap or dispute in, in, in those lists. We each had our own interests. And then my coming in later, um, I pursued that list and went where I thought uh, there were larger holes that, that could be filled. Uh, and we shared each other's characters. We just mixed them up. And I just use who I think is needed for that story or who uh, is an interesting, amusing character who could show up at that time or might be nearby. Uh, we try, you know, we to, to get it right. I'm sure that a couple of times we made some missteps, but it's a, it's a big project. <laughs> sure. Of course. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. I love it. What about uh, the, the, and, and I wonder if you have any like kind of connection to the sea or something like that. I wore my high seas hat today, which is just nothing, but a, it's a local brewery, but like one of the things and, and it's kind of, I think universal is that the ocean, like the sea battles, both, I think the stuff in stone wielder. And I think the, the whole root stuff with the kind of shooting the straights and all of that in a sail is just some of the most badass stuff. And I wonder if you, you know, if what, what the connection is there or how do you, how did you manage to pull off such like epic sea stuff? Cause that seems like you got to have some kind of knowledge there. <laughs> well, that's great. I'm glad that you feel that way. Uh, that's wonderful to hear in that mostly from reading and research, uh, you know, I'm a prairie boy and I guess that's the attraction. If you're attracted to what is exotic to your own upbringing. You know, I grew up yeah. on the prairie and then here I am longing for the coast. And, and I suppose there are people who live on the coast who just are sick of it and want to get inland. So, <laughs> yeah. but the, uh, the rest of it is reading, um, research. I find myself reading mostly nonfiction these days, uh, histories, war histories, campaign histories, uh, and, and um, research like that. Yeah, because that's the stuff I read, and I was like, man, someone needs to like make a movie out of this stuff, because that would be epic. Well, that would be It's great. just really, really well done, and it seems like you know a lot of tension and all the good stuff that you that you go to books for. Well, I'm glad it worked. That's that's great. Yeah, either of you ever any, read any of those Master and Commander books? My friend's like really into them. I think there's like 26 of them, or there's a ton of them, right? Is that the 
O'Brien, is that the... Yeah, yeah, I think so, right? Yeah, uh, well, if you want um, historical detail and facts, I mean, that is certainly a place to go. There's just a ton of uh, research behind those works and, and historical details. Uh, mm-hmm. but, it, it, but they are a bit slow, I think, for that reason. Yeah, you mentioned you're reading histories. I mean, that's just one of those things. There's a huge also realm of historical fiction. Do you have any interest in that type of stuff? Um, yeah, some. When I was younger, I, I read a lot more historical fiction. and But now I'm, I'm a little bit less patient, I, I'm, I'm finding. But what do you mean by that? Well, um, not necessarily inaccuracies, but um, authorial artistic license, let's say. Mm. And... Um, some authors perhaps injecting a little bit of historical revisionism. Uh, so I sort of prefer to skip that and go more straight to actual um, firsthand accounts, memoirs, that sort of thing. Interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I don't know, Pete, if you mind if I jump in, but that's like, it, it kind of touches on one of the that's areas. What I, that's what I was going to do. Nice, do it. Okay, yeah, no, because pull, pulling back the veil, I think it feels like that's like a thing, you know, that runs through your books because you have some like familiarity with some of these characters and things like that. And it's always kind of like almost uh, kind of calling BS or or really peeling back the curtain on here's like, you know, and and the events that that, you know, like. I'm thinking about Path to Ascendancy and I don't mean to, you know, but I think even in like Night of Knives and things like that, where it's like the actuality of these like myth, you know, things that have grown to kind of mythological status played out differently than the the kind of common conception. And I just felt like that was kind of maybe you were channeling some of that what you were just talking about in there throughout the book, all of the books, (laughs) all the books. It's always. Yeah, we're, we're definitely calling into question the accepted wisdom and also perspective. You know, every every character has their own view of the events. And one's <clears throat> account would, would differ uh, from anyone else's account who, who may have been present in the very same events. Um, and that's just normal human nature. Uh, and I, I don't think it should be a search for truth. I think it should be a search for personal, uh, what, what, could, what you found in that moment, you know, and what you took out of that moment, each individual. Yeah, because, yeah, it's 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 fascinating to see, you know, all the all the kind of because I think, you know, even not just Night of Knives, which is, you know, that was like kind of a defining thing in the Book of the Fallen is like that. That's what set off a lot of the, you know, kind of internal stuff and and whatever. But I think all the way through, like you're 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 doing it with a lot of different uh, characters. <laughs> I, I love the master Golan and the, like the, you know, bookkeeper guy who's like going along in blood and bone and the, you know, the journal of the vict- ever victorious army and all that stuff. And just yeah. kind of like, you kind of see firsthand how they're massaging it all and whatever and making it into. Yeah. And, and I hope this will help the reader sort of cast a more skeptical eye on accepted histories and accepted versions, uh, especially when the authors have perhaps something to hide or something to convey and they yeah, they're they're trying to sort of make themselves look look better perhaps and we we always need to be uh skeptical readers mm-hmm. so as not to be deceived um what I wanted to ask was to link onto this subject about Knight and Knives, which I think is, you know, it, it starts, it's this kind of shorter one. And, and But my understanding is that you had written Return of the Crimson Guard before this. Both. Um, Knight of Knives and Crimson Guard were, were written way back. But I think maybe C- Return was 
finished or a version of it was finished before Night of Knives. Yeah, that could be the case. But both of them were done way back in the 80s. Uh, and, Interesting. And, and have, um, if we looked at them now, they'd be very, almost unrecognizable, you know, very, very different because <laughs> mm. we've changed things since then. But yeah, those were the earliest uh, completed manuscripts. Uh, and then we did some screenplays too, Steve and I. Um, yeah, I recall. I mean, wasn't Gardens of the Moon originally a screenplay the two of you guys wrote? Yeah, we did it as a screenplay after we gamed it. And then so the first mm. written version of it, uh, out of the game, was a screenplay. Uh, mm. Now, what kind of draws you from going to writing screenplays to writing novels? I mean, they're such different mediums. Yeah, um, both of us were more interested in the novelization. And we did the screenplay more as a shortcut. Mm. And uh, we whipped through them pretty fast. Uh, and uh, then we pitched them, uh, actually. And we were hoping maybe that would be our route and would be a quicker route than uh, sitting down and spending a year on a, <laughs> on a novel that may or may not get accepted anywhere. Sure, sure. Do you still have those kicking around? Or are you still happy with them? Can we? Are, are we ever going to see that happen? Oh, my goodness, no. They're, <laughs> they're in shoeboxes. They're earlier t- early attempts. Maybe, Steve, you know, I think we both have versions of them. Uh, and, uh, some, and sometimes when we're together, we talk about things. And of course, just like our books, we disagree. We see it and he'll say something and I'll say, no, that's not what happened. And he'll say, yes, I remember it. <laughs> so we, even we are uh, constantly trying to figure out, wait a minute, now what, what did happen? Do, do you have a background in movies or anything like that? Or where does the screenplay thing come in? Because I always like felt like reading your books that it felt very like, I don't know, whatever the word is, cinematic. Cin- cinematic? Yeah, cinematic, totally. Yeah. I think that's just my style. I just, I have a cinematic style. Uh, some yeah. readers, some, every author has their own style, you know. Uh, we, all, we all write differently uh, and have our strengths and weaknesses. And I think mine maybe is it it, it is cinematic, and, and that can sometimes be construed as a bit of a weakness because um, then you it you, you can fall into the habit of doing too much visualization and not enough internalization. So you you know you really have to watch what how you're apportioning your time on the page. Uh, but also, I, I studied writing, and part of the writing you study uh, screenplays and format and that kind of thing. You, you, know, you read some and you get a feel for it as a genre because it is really is a very separate genre. I mean, just because you can write a novel doesn't mean you can write a screenplay. Yeah. And then screenplays are even end up different than the movies that if like they're essentially two different things in, entirely. So they're serving Definitely. the screen. Right. And that's a different art form. So it shouldn't yeah. be identical to the print. You got a movie. You got a movie you love. What's a movie you love? A movie that I love. Um, well, I'm a child of the '80s, and you know, I'm a bit getting on a bit. I, I love um, love Blade Runner, you know, and, and I still Great do. I really Classic. admire that uh, film uh, mm. the, because it raises so many questions, uh, deep questions about yeah. human nature. You know, what makes what makes you human, and and what is human, and uh, those are all just wonderful questions. Uh, and so mm. that that film really spoke to me. Do you, uh, do you read that Philip K. Dick story? Actually, I've never read that one. Yeah, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? There's a lot of ecological yeah. stuff in, in the novel that didn't get into the Interesting. Um, film, but that just would have slowed the film down. You know? Yeah, yeah, I could see how it's time to eschew that if you're 
Yeah, the philosophical stuff is huge. That's one of the things I think really shines in the whole stone wielder thing, but on both sides, actually. But I love the stuff at the end with, uh, you know, the whole storm guard and and just, you know, kind of real, you know, the and, and actually kind of ties in with the Talon IMAS stuff, which is kind of a through line, I think, of the books, too. And just these, you know, it's like they're hyper committed and they're like, you know, there's like honorable people on all these things, even like the Segula and Orb Scepter throne. They're super like, you know, honorable and good and whatever and like admirable. And, you know, you could you and like they're fighting for these crazy uh, causes and stuff. What Steve and I wanted to do is if if we had contending uh, parties or races that are, you know, introduced, we try and do them full justice and, and give them just as much uh, uh, fleshing out and roundness as any sort of main character or main uh, contender in, in, in a, a conflict. And, and so uh, both sides have their uh, reasons for what they're doing and they, they deserve the full attention. And, uh, and of course, another through line for the world is, is the moral grayness. There's no complete right or wrong. It's, it's shades of gray. At least that's what I hope we're getting across. That's what, and I have no philosophy background for me. It was like, yeah, what does it mean to be a good person? It's like Jan, you know, in, in Orbs Up Your Throat, it's like that guy is the dude. He's like, you know what I mean? It's like, that's who you would love to have like a son, somebody do, you know what I mean? That's just like epic. But then it's like the underlying, you know, and he's kind of got the wool. And so I, I, I just love that, that whole thing. And I think you see this, the storm guard thing, even the, the whole, you know, Malazan side of of that whole conflict in Stone Wielder too. I think that was really really well done. So I I appreciated the philosophy as a total newbie. Huh. Well, I for for us we hope um, that you know we see people in um, crisis, people uh, who are who are in, in being tested, and it's the you know it's the test that uh, reveals the character, uh, you know, and and so some react one way and some react the other way, and it's. Uh, uh, that's the test of, of crisis. Yeah, I mean, when you're tested, your virtues and values really show themselves ultimately when you have to make those decisions. And I'm speaking on this. I mean, I really think when you're talking about virtues and values reflected through these series, I mean, the way um, if we talk about the Book of the Fallen in those 10 books, I mean, ultimately they're painting a type of values through a type of continuity they have and kind of more of a statements being made in the later books, especially in the end. Right. Um, and I just wonder, I mean, th you know, they're like loosely connected, but also pretty, pretty connected. A and I wonder how much you thought to try and make a statement as a United six with these six books, or if you were trying to have them more separated, how much were you trying to have a continuity between them and how important that is is for you when you're thinking about writing these writing multiple books that are connected. Um, these six aren't as much as a connected follow through, say, as Steve's ten. Uh, they're sure, definitely. Um, certainly more disparate mm. in place and character. But what I hope is that what comes through is that the same um, philosophical issues are being looked at again and again and again. Uh, questions of loyalty, questions of betrayal. Uh, and and uh, things like uh, friendship and, and other themes that are sort of being examined through different lenses in different books. And I hope that that's a continuity that, that comes through. 
right through to a sale. I, yeah, Lanastog definitely tops it off as as one of the epic villains for me. So that uh, no, but I think you know that I think if you like, and I'm curious, just kind of going off Pete's thing because you know it seems to me like Knight of Knives is really going to be like the end ultimately, maybe of like the path to ascendancy stuff. But the whole Crimson Guard really does run through, you know what I mean? Return of the Crimson Guard through a sale, and I love the parallel there with the Talon Imas and the whole Lanastog, you know, kind of. Um, stuff but just in general it's like they're basically redoing the same you know and it's and it's really tragic when you find it out yeah well um and so from uh, the question being you know about that continuity and it's true um, they're a main thread um but it's not the books of the crimson guard right and, and so totally. they, they show up and they're important um but the the reason that we're, we're sort of People are, I remember people have raised the question about, well, it's the books of the Malazan Empire, but we're not following the Malazan Empire. What's, <laughs> what's going on? Um, so, for example, it's more that's the, the sort of the name for the period. So if you think about, say, the Roman Age or the Victorian yeah. Age, it's, it's, yeah, it's, totally. it's, it's a, uh, you know, a political entity that's lent its name to, to that period. Yeah. And so these tales come out of that period. Uh, and and one of the entities being uh, examined is is the empire itself, but also its enemy. Uh, uh, this mm. it's, it's avowed enemy, uh, the Crimson Guard. Yeah, I mean, I think um, when you talk about powers as large as empires and um, you know forces, these types of structures. I mean, they have their 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 influences are outside of themselves you know i mean these are immensely powerful things so you know it, it it's not like that the crimson guard in some way is defined against is it is an oppositional group right it's defined against them so in a way they are still kind of defined by the malazan empire in a sense so i i mean i think it's like it's kind of i feel like misreading it to i mean i think these books are talking about the Malazan Empire, but maybe not talking about, you know, the Malazans themselves, but that's still, it would kind of be short-sighted, I feel, to ignore the influence of an empire or colonization or these, I mean, these structures are huge and have influences all over the world, you know? So to limit it to, I think, to the, like, the empire itself, I think is probably the wrong lens, right? I think so too. It would be, it would be very inward looking. Uh, and, and limiting to, to do that. Uh, when I was in school growing up, and I'm, I'm showing my age again here, but in the history class, it was just a list of kings. You know, your history was just sure. a list of rulers. And, and that's all it was. And it was dry as dust. You know, there was yeah. no life to it. And so that's definitely something I think that Steve and I wanted to avoid completely. <laughs> um, no. I mean, it's it's a whole other that's a whole other subject. In fact, I was just studying some Japanese history the other day, and um, you know, some part it's it, it's such a different contrast, you know, coming from America, which you know, of course, there's a large focus on the presidents, you know, in the way contemporary American history is taught. But it's not like there's this list of every emperor of Japan for the last whatever, whatever, and we're talking about this. I mean, yeah, it's just a totally different insight. It's, it's always interesting not only to study other places' history, but also to think about how other people are thinking about history on that other level, you know. No, I think that's what's great is that you kind of zoom it out and you get to see. And I think that's one of the fascinating things about the Crimson Guard is like after Re Return of the Crimson Guard, they're kind of like we kind of 
already did this vow. So that's already that, you know, toothpaste is out of the tube or whatever, but they're not really in conflict. So then it's like, you know, what now what or whatever. And just the whole, yeah, consequences of that. Yeah, there's lots of other events that are uh, sort of alluded to, you know, like uh, the invasion of stratum or other things that we could always do. Uh, but we, uh, at least I and Steve, I'm sure, chose what we did because we thought that they had suited a particular theme uh, or mm. story that we wanted to tell. So we chose our uh, historical periods and settings with with an eye to, to that. Um, mm. So I don't think that it... it it was wasn't the reverse. It wasn't that. Oh well, here's a gap, and I'll just fill it with something. I mean, I think that's the right call. Ultimately, obviously, if there's like a reason or there's some interesting story you think to be told through like the invasion of Stratomer, right? The one of these like classic things we all know, you know. Then it's like I, it's like of course it's probably good to go there, you know. But I think if you're going there for the sake of going there, you know, maybe that's, you know, I don't know. That's not, it sounds like a pitfall. Yeah, I don't know. But then again, it can be fun. So I'm not really trying to throw water. That's true water, too. You know? I mean, it can be it can be done well. Yeah, and maybe having a little fun's all right. So yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I hope that the ultimately at the very top, the readers are having fun. You know, that's how you keep them. And you know, you there is no finger wagging from us. And 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 uh, you know, you have to you know read this or that. Uh, we just want to draw the reader along with the plot and story and, and have it be entertaining and intriguing. And then as long as you've got that established, that level, then you can work underneath that in the subtext if you, know, if you choose. Yes. Yeah. If you choose. Totally. Tr- try and draw them in emotionally, engage them emotionally, if you will. <laughs> yes. <laughs> try to. <laughs> you were starting to talk about uh, like non-Western perspectives and that I think like we have a, we have a best duos channel in our, in our discord. And, and one of the best duos I got to throw out is Merck and sour. And it kind of gets it, you know, cause they're a nice contrast to, uh, you know, that non-Western thing. Cause you kind of have like Merck who's, you know, and then sour totally gets into it and he's like doing all the stuff and he totally, you know, and, and that whole setting too of Jackaruku and the forest and Southeast Asia and all that stuff is like, I, I don't know. Can you talk about that? Cause those are, a, a killer duo that I think kind of embodies some of all that stuff that you're talking about. Well, um, you know, they one of them make one of them makes makes the leap in, into making uh, cultural adjustments and and is is adoptive uh, and is seeking out the truth of of uh, the, the 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 jungle and the local environment that he finds himself in, and he sees people prospering there and living there, and well, how are they doing it? They're um, so he looks into that and values their wisdom and values their history and, and, and adopts it. So cool. Yeah. And then like by the end, Merck's like totally like, you know, trashing him for it, making fun of him. And he's this idiot, you know, and then it's like the whole like army's going for it, you know? And, uh, and I love that like renegade, like, you know, uh, whatever, like, you know, they've been outmoded or whatever from the, from the Malazans and they link up and they're like, dude, oh my God, this guy like knows. And then everybody's like falling asleep. He's like, what the hell is like going on? And he finally like gets it eventually. There's, there's so many lessons, uh, historically, you know, especially in the Arctic, you have expeditions that are stranded in the North and, uh, refuse to adopt to, you know, the ways of the Inuit and, um, freeze to death. And if only they had just, you know, relinquished their ship or, 
you know, <laughs> and, and been willing to let go of their um, traditions. It's hard, though. It's very hard to change like that mm. because you come in with your own biases. You think you're always the best, naturally. And, and he said, well, the ways are inferior, uh, is, you know, the mm. thinking, used to be the thinking, I, I hope. Uh, so it's, it's hard to make that jump. And in the duo, um, uh, I think it's Sowers. Merck's like fighting it all. Or is it, I forget which one. Yeah, Merck's like the one who's trash and sour. Yeah, for he's fighting it, it all yeah. the way. <laughs> no, no it's, it's funny. I forget. I, I mixed that up sometimes too. But um, no, I mean, I think it's like you're, I think you're dead on. I mean, you're talking about power, right? And your ability to like acknowledge not only that these people in some way in this scenario have more power than you and kind of being willing to let yourself be less powerful and find wisdom and value their culture you know it's ultimately kind of about respect yeah it's interesting too because he's a mage right so he's used to being the one with the power and that's why Merck's like dude i'm supposed to be the g the one who you know and then he's like it's kind of like a surrendering it's like a big uh yeah yeah i mean it's always difficult to admit you're wrong or to open up and become vulnerable you know that's yeah. that's always difficult um, yeah and it's like a comment on the environment too right and just how powerful all like that mother nature and stuff is too that you're yeah. like kind of not the master of the the domain and all that yeah, it's a very environmental book in the, yeah in that sense like himatan is very powerful in its as an organic whole and uh, those those who respect that are, are prospering within it no. rogue side question i know uh since we're since we're talking we're so related in this realm i guess but um the stone wielder, uh, I hear there's some inspiration from the Imperial Treasures of Japan, confirmed deny, true or false? Oh, that's interesting. I'm not sure. What what's the um what's the inspiration? Well, I had I had read about the different parts of uh the you know, the different chain parts of it. Um I, I, I this is weird though, because I had read this somewhere. This wasn't my opinion. I I thought this was like a confirmed inspiration, you know? Hmm. My, I, it doesn't ring a bell. I mean, I may have forgotten, uh, but it doesn't come to mind. Well, there you go. Solve that one, I guess. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I don't know. Seems like you're authoritative on what inspired you about it. I do seem to have a thing about weapons, though. And I have, I've, I've come up with uh, far more magical weapons, I think, than, than Steve has for yeah, but magical weapons are great. So, I mean, I mean, in my mind, the more the merrier, you know. I'm here for it. Yeah. Are we ever going to see more like uh, Kyle and Jessus, like a little buddy cop series where they're out tearing it up? Moving on in the future. I I don't know. I don't. Interesting idea. You don't have to see where they might be and where I am in the timeline uh, for, yeah. my, <clears throat> for my future projects. Uh, knock on wood, as, as they say, we can get, get to them. Are you aware? I don't know if you even or what your thoughts are, but there's like, a, you know, like it, there's somewhat of a controversy, which I personally am surprised on. But like people are debating who Jethus ultimately is. Does that surprise you or? No, I'm not surprised. Uh, that was a difficult one. And uh, in, in the game, when we game that uh, character arc, uh, yeah. uh, that that was Rick. That was Anomander. Uh, wow. Orig originally. Wow. Originally. Yeah. Yes. That's that's this how we, that's show. how I, I ran I ran the game and uh, he uh, 
was very powerful by this point, uh, too, too powerful, frankly. Uh, and, and he kept breaking his weapons and destroying them because he was so strong. And then he, I, I told him that there's this race called the Fakrul, who they say could make anything, could make something destructible. And so he goes to find them, the, and uh, he says, "Make me a weapon that's worthy of me, you know, that that I that that I can't break." And so they they look at him and they say, "Well, do you really want to do that? <laughs> because the mm. price is very high." And he says, "Yes, you know." So. Yeah, they take him and they um, cut his arm off and and use his bones to make his sword. Uh, and then, though, as years went on, Steve, in his series, um, went with Rake, and uh, then in the very end, with uh, his uh, death in the books, being as you know important a sacrifice as it was that we talked about, you know, we didn't want to cheapen that. We didn't want him to, we didn't want him to pop back up and say, Oh, I'm back. You know, that would really be a disservice to, to the depth of that moment. It would, it would cheapen that emotional moment. And also the series has come under some fire. I understand because we don't have a really distinct line between life and death. We have lots of characters straddling, that you know and so we didn't want to abuse that either i'm so excited to hear that because it is you know what i thought too and also the reason why i thought it it wasn't that but you just gave a lot of ammo to the people who you know were were ride or die for that uh originally so that's a bombshell well, I, I mean, I, we're, we're trying to respect the moments that, that we're creating. And um, so after that, those books, I just we talked it over and decided that we that uh, I, I re- it would be more it would be more proper if, if, if we didn't go that route. So it kind of makes sense because ultimately it's not him, but you're kind of like nodding to it in a way. You know, you're showing, you're like paying homage in a sense. And the ultimate face palm getting that sword too, because he's like, "Yeah, totally. <laughs> Give me one that's worthy of me." And then you, after the fact, Oof. well, you asked for it. <laughs> yeah, that's. It's interesting you mentioned this. I had a few questions ran down. I want to ask you about it. So, when you and Steve were playing, was it like fifty-fifty? You guys running the games versus playing it? Where like, how often were you in the pilot seat, so to speak? He hadn't gamed. I introduced gaming to him. Oh, so really? If you think about it, you were all the way. This is all on you. So I was GMing uh, at the beginning, uh, mostly, almost always. Like all the um, um, high power stuff with uh, Rake and uh, Cirque and Lady Envy Mm -hmm. and Terrace and all the rest. uh, Those were mostly my games. Uh, But then as time passed, he picked up more and more and then started running more and more. And by the end, he was, I think he was running more than I was because he had started the Malazan campaign. And I, my character was Wu or uh, Kellen. So he was running those. So how did you get into the hobby then? Um, I found it in high school. I found the D&D books. And, and I, of course, I was a voracious fantasy reader. And I just had mm. read tons of it. And I saw, oh, here's a way I can you know, you know, live it, so to speak. Sure. Um, 
And um, the first groups I was with, it was it was sort of, you know, it wasn't very satisfactory. It didn't really gel. It didn't take off. But then by the time I started university, University of Manitoba, there was a gaming club there. And mm. these guys were great. And we really uh, had a great gang of gamers there. And it, and it really it, it took off. Mm. Wow. Do you still play nowadays? No, no, not anymore. <laughs> I'm sadly, uh, well, I'm, I'm writing and it's hard to pull a gang together up here in, in uh, Alaska. <laughs> what takes you to Alaska? Is that family or what, uh, what's the, what's the connection there? Oh, well, uh, work. Um, I was up here doing my master's in uh, creative writing uh, with my, and I met my wife. And we went off and, and traveled and, and worked. And then a job opening came up here. Uh, and both of us enjoyed it. Like, I know people come up here and they don't like it. It's, you know, it's just not for them, the dark, the cold. Uh, fair enough. It's just not for you. Uh, but we both enjoyed it. So we were willing to come back. Uh, and uh, that was one, almost one of the requirements, I think, for the job. They didn't want someone who, after two months, would just run screaming sure. off into the night. <laughs> Uh, and so she got the job at the university here uh, in the uh, creative in the English department, and so mm. we packed up and drove the Elkan back up north. Wow! And where are you from originally? Then Prairie, you say? Yeah, Winnipeg, mm. Winnipeg, Manitoba. And uh, and there you go. met Steve um, in the archaeology program there. But you got a master's in creative writing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm um, overeducated. It's <laughs> not, not the worst crime there is. No, it's yeah. a good. It's a good way to spend your time as long as you soak it up, and uh, because really, you I don't think, lose your mind. Yeah, it's about. Uh, I think it's about you know fulfillment, self fulfillment. It's. I don't like to see education framed as a career path, like you know, a way to make more money. It's. I think it's more about uh, becoming a more uh, literate person and. Um, a person better able to appreciate the cultural heritage that that they have and make better choices. I, I would hope it's a it's a good on its own right. That's all it yes, is. Yes, know? I think so. I don't like to yeah, see it you. being framed as some kind of income earner or something. It's not. Oh. Really. It's just it's getting hijacked because they're charging you hundreds of thousands of dollars to make that happen now. At well, at certain schools, yes, but the state system is, I think, is perfectly valid. Public education. Mm -hmm. Let's get it. <laughs> nice. Um, well, uh, something uh, to, to link back to some of this role playing. I was curious. So, you know, you were talking about running these high level games. Obviously, you played uh, Kellen Ved. I wonder if there are any other classic characters. I know you played Kaladin Brood. I, I just I, I would love to know other player characters you loved playing or, you know, any any special character you have in your mind, you know? Um, I don't know if Steve remembers it the same way I do, but I remember that Whiskey Jack was my uh, player character, mm -hmm. uh, and I really enjoyed him uh, at down at the squad level because uh, he was just a grunt to begin with. Mm. And um, with him was my other character <clears throat> at the time, whose name was uh, Wolverine. And uh, when we finally really got these books accepted, uh, Bantam came back to us and said, uh, we've got this list of names that you can't use <laughs> uh, because of certain copyright reasons. Um, you you can't have this character named Wolverine or, or anymore. Uh, I think it was Wolverine. It was something like that. So uh, he became Hedge, and we all, mm. as we all know him now, the partner of Fiddler. And, mm. and so so that grouping was it was a lot of fun. 
And and speaking of Fiddler and Hedge, just to throw in the for the haters who say there's no like real meaning to death and all of that stuff, like tell that to Fiddler and Hedge. That's brutal. Come on, they're like it's not the same guy. You don't just go back to being buddies and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And you don't come back the same either. Yeah, and I, I think that's why I, I find that criticism fairly hollow. I mean, it's like if you look at characters who return, which there are plenty, and I I do think maybe you can make that argument in a sense. It's not like they come back and they're back to being a big part of the plot. You know what I mean? You know, it's like usually they come back and they're kind of around. and They're still lost, yeah, dude. Read know. those with a dry eye. Come on. Tell me that. And damaged because of the events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anyhow. So haters haters going to hate. Forget that. <laughs> haters are going to hate. hate They'll find hate, a way. Hate, hate. What about the Azathenai? Because that, like, it, well, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll ask it a different way. But what if you just had, like, no, there was no considerations or anything? What would be the thing that you'd write about if there was no, you don't have to worry about how many books you sold or whatever? Like, what's just the super fun thing that you'd um, go nuts exploring if you could? Hmm. I don't know, because I feel that I am doing that, you know? Um, yeah. Commercial awesome. consideration <laughs> hasn't been very high on either of our lists, Steve and I. You know, we just do what we want. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I think I can say that. Um, I don't awesome. really think too it's much. Working for me. Yeah, I don't think about you know the I don't know numbers, sales. That it's irrelevant. But do, but I'm just so curious. I mean, I don't mean to pry, but are is someone coming to you like, can you write about the stratum and like, can you write about these things that ostensibly would be more commercial, or is this just you know you're just off in your thing and you're going to show up and be like, I wrote. 200,000 words about this. This is what I, you know, ba-boom. Well, you know, I am answerable to my publisher. So I will send them uh, outline of, of mm. a project. And if they like it, they'll green light it. And mm. so, but, you know, I'll just send them what I want to do. And I'll say, this is what I want to do with these books. And so far they've okayed everything. So oh, that's not, great. not once have they said, ah, I don't know about that. But also, the person who's always after me is Steve. She's, <laughs> she's like, I want to see this. this. I want to see that. <laughs> well, I want to throw one out, too, because I want to see more, like, Rillish. I love the idea of him, like, not getting the redemption in Stonewielder, and then he kind of, like, does the homecoming. I could see him, like, being an old man trying to, like, chill and be, you know, I'm done with all that stuff. I don't know. He's just an amazing, awesome character. <laughs> So you, you, I know you're kind of joking there, but how much is when you're talking with Steve, I mean, you talk about breaking up this bullet point list. How much is there actually this coordination or like talk of like, hey, like I'm going to address mm, Lacine stuff in these books. I'm going to address, you know, what's going to, you know, I'm going to address Silver Fox in these books. Like how much is this actually part of that collaboration or is this kind of just, you wanted to tell a story about the Talani Mass and the Jagut, and you knew Silver Fox was on the table, so to speak. So you kind of put her on to the playing field. Yes, um, coordination and uh, <clears throat> consulting, back and forth, that sort of thing. Uh, well, I, you'll be, I don't know, maybe terrified to hear that there's scarily little. Mm. <laughs> no, that, I, I'm honestly not surprised. Yeah, know? I'll I'll just email him and say, you know, I want to pick up with Silver Fox, and he'll say, okay. And then he'll mm-hmm. email me, and he'll say, where's Orlong? Like, where did you leave him? And I'll say, oh, he's he's on he's on the continent with the Rujistan. And I say, oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. That's about it. Although we talk about the projects, you know, 
in in more like well what i'm 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 happy with this this isn't going well but i'm not sure about this part and you know we'll just gab yeah but gab is like friends and authors not as like well what is good what is go you know checking you know lore or whatever i mean it's kind of late by now to have trust issues <laughs> too much water under the bridge here i just 100 percent. you mm. do what he wants and and i will do what i want and i think it i hope anyway that it shows that they think it while there are differences in the particulars the uh essence of the world the the thematics all still you know fit together i showed peter my ps publishing a sale it's somewhere it's all blurred out but it's right there but i'm curious like i i know there like is a thirst for like just killer books are you gonna do some like kind of or is there any possibility for more reprints or something or do something with sub press or do something cool with hardbacks or something for people or like merch or so like people want to wear t <laughs> you know what i mean people want like little segula dolls and stuff is there any hope of that in our future um well i would love that i mean reprints would be great i and uh i haven't been contacted but um i'd be open to it certainly um and merch and, and things like that. We do get approached through our agent, you know, um, gaming companies, other production companies have, have approached us and said, you know, we want to do a uh, um, RPG, mm. right, based in the world, which is would make perfect sense. Uh, and they've pitched it to us. A uh, number of companies have, but it just it wasn't right, you know, or else they see the scope of the project and they go, whoa, that's too much for us. And they'll sort of go elsewhere. Yeah, I'm really curious about that because, you know, right now when you look at tabletop gaming, I mean, it's just a huge boom. I mean, it's so popular right now and all these different things. And I would, I'm just curious about what, what type of values you think about when you're trying to make those types of decisions. Because obviously, as you say, it does, there is like, when you, like, let's make a big budget TV adaptation of Malazant. There's like a billion there's a lot that you would have to address. I mean, there's a ton of things easier to make a forum post about than to do, you know, but like, let's make a campaign setting book for Ganabacus where, you know, people who are hobbyists can enjoy this thing. That's like pretty aligned. You know, I do see there's more of a fit there. And I wonder when these people are approaching about these projects, you know, what type of values you're looking for in those things. That seems, you know, I'm curious about that. A number of years ago, Steve and I were approached by a company who shall remain nameless, uh, to do a computer game, uh, computer uh, RPG. And um, <clears throat> we, we spoke, uh, and Steve and I, our vision was that it would have to be a massive multiplayer um, sort of thing, like uh, open, an open, sure. huge open world. Big open world. Yeah, yeah that, for us, that would be Malaz, sort of like yeah. Skyrim, you know, that sort of yeah. thing. Uh, oh but God, but he they they wanted to do a first person slasher type mm. thing, a first person swordsman game, and uh, we said no, we just don't no, we don't see that, so we had to turn them down. No, that could like the Assassin's Creed where you just run like fifty miles and it's just all these different world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm. I'm into that. Like even just T-shirt. You need someone who's just really good at the internet and just like puts up cool stuff. <laughs> you know, or got, call the Funko Pop. Yeah, like man. Yeah, and and we also Stephen, I thought that um, uh, like you said, Peter, uh, a good opening would be say a game uh, tabletop RPG set in just on the Malaz Island, for example. 
sure. You know, just you start, you start the there, and you're like a first level character, and you meet all the per- persons, and you get in, you know, oh, a couple of minor adventures, and you slowly sort of, you know, grow out from there in modules, that that, that type of thing. Um, yeah. But I don't know, no one bit so. I hope someone sees this and calls you immediately. <laughs> that we need that. We we desperately need that. I'm a fan of the, of uh, of the genre, obviously. That that seems to me like much more like a thing. People, I don't know. Like tabletop is huge. People do it all the you know. That's a slam dunk. Like, they just opened one in town. It, it's that, like a, it, exact. That seems to me like a slam dunk. You know. Li, you know. TV shows are a whole other kettle of fish. You know. I I know. That's been talked about before, but exactly, and that's like money and all this, you know, all this, you know. Anyway, we'll get our hooks into them somehow. <laughs> we'll manifest the tabletop setting, you know. Totally, hundred percent. Iskar, do you ever tabletop stuff? I don't know that about you. No, I don't. No? I'm old. I have young kids, so I'm pretty much spreadsheets and you know <laughs> diapers and all that. Mm. What about the the next couple? Because I know you're already on the hook for for some more stuff, right? And that's going to close up the gap timeline. Yeah, I read Gistel's four, and then you'll do five six, and that'll be all part of Path to Ascendancy. Yeah, it's sort of um, the next books are uh, following along from from the end of the third uh, time wise, uh, and but they're not telling the same stories; they're telling different stories. Mm. Uh, mm. So I know a lot of people are invested in in Kellenbed and, and dancer and they want to see more focused on them but now there's so many there's so many uh ways and, and ways of and paths to pursue in ascendancy and there's so many people trying to do that that uh these other books will look at other people's journeys and uh, other 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 paths to ascendancy i love it and they're um, all kind of under that umbrella though and his, history wise, yes, we're we're on on track and time wise uh, to sort of still prior to gardens events and sort of working up towards that period. Kind of like what you're saying, Escar, kind of building towards Night of Knives. Very provocative title too. Everybody's thirsting. I can tell you personally. Oh, oh, right. Uh, on that, I, I can fill in some um, info here. Uh, the editors aren't all that sold on on the on the title. They, they thought oh my god oh, yeah yeah that's they, like the juiciest part of the whole thing <laughs> i i do i do get though that if you don't know what it is it is like a it's know, inside baseball yeah, yeah that's their yeah. problem and they're saying that it's too inside uh and it's not uh it doesn't um give a uh direction for someone who mm. just looks at it on the shelf they, they have no yeah. idea of where it's going as a novel uh, and mm. and so I said, okay, I I agree with that. I, I'll accept that. Yeah. Uh, and so we kicked around a couple of alternative titles, and so mm. Gestal is was is the working title, but uh, it looks like it's going to come out under um, Forge of a High Mage. Whoa! Boom! We got all the exclusives on this show. Boom. I love it. Oh my god, I'm so excited. So there's your big uh, path, big path there. Forge of a Forge of the. Forge of the High Mage. Forge of the High Mage. Oof, oof, oof. Yes. Oh, the vibes. Very excited. I will be curious, though. Is is there more of a clarification? I thought the book was going to come out last year, but obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well, COVID and everything else, it just got pushed back. Uh, And and I'm probably the one to blame. I just 
fell behind. It was difficult. I found it difficult to do justice to, to the project. And so it, it was, uh, it slowed down, but now it's, they have it, it's done and they're all, all, uh, dusted. Exciting. The excitement is, is at a very high level. So yeah, I, I kind of assumed it was the global pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe that might have something to do with it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just—it seemed like a safe assumption. I don't know; it was going on. <laughs> Very noble to not—you could have just easily thrown that one under the bus on the pandemic. <laughs> That's right. Could, could have blamed anything, couldn't I? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody would have known. Okay, uh, all-purpose all excuse. <laughs> I'm curious. So, you know, obviously Steve has branched out, ran some other stuff. Do you? Would you ever curious in branching out, writing something in sci-fi, writing a historical? I don't know, writing whatever else. Yeah, um, I've always hankered. I always wanted to write science fiction, and I have a couple uh, science fiction projects that I'm working on, and I uh, hope to to complete. And uh, I hope that uh, can uh, find favor in the eyes of publishing. How would you describe the difference between fiction and science fantasy? <laughs> science fiction and fantasy. So fantasy. <laughs> Fantasy and nice. science fantasy, perhaps? Yeah. Science, yeah. 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 For me, Star Wars is just is just fantasy. Yeah. It has the, the yeah. thinnest connection to science fiction, just because mm-hmm. it's in space, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess I just mean between science fiction and fantasy. Do you conceptualize a difference there? Do you make a difference? How do you view kind of the blur of these genres that are so often... Yeah. Yeah I, I, yeah, I don't like the blurring. I, I think it has to be based in science or not, uh, and for mm. it to be to be for it to be science fiction, mm. you can speculate. I'm just always curious. You can speculate. You can play with ideas, but they have to come back to be rooted in some sort of current realism. I think. Do you watch any of that stuff like on YouTube or anything like the crazy science? Because I, 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 you talked earlier about just philosophy and stuff like that. But like when when you go hardcore into like particle physics and all of that and these like double slit experiments or, you know, it, it kind of does get back to, you know, as hardcore as the science gets, then at some point it becomes philosophical again. Are you into that kind of stuff or? Uh, not the um, not the hard science like physics, but more um, biology and uh, environmentalism, eco- mm. e- ecological thinking and, uh, and evolution. I mean, I think there's something. I mean, science is about communing with the unknown in a way. So, I mean, it's about exploring the world. So, sure, sure. you can do that in a number of ways. So. Of course. Um, and what draws you more to like just the? Is it just spending time in nature that your ecology biology type of has that more of a draw i don't know i maybe it's just i feel i can tell um the stories there are more compelling to me i don't know mm-hmm. they, they draw me more and also of course the the time the things that we're facing mm-hmm. that that there is <clears throat> an, an existential threat right there that is so looming and is deserving of attention do you feel that more because you're in Alaska too? So you're like kind of on the front lines of a lot of the crazy stuff that just like environmentally, at least I see the, you know, YouTubes of all these glaciers tumbling down and all that. Some of it, yes. But of course, <clears throat> there's just people who can interpret that in uh, any way they wish, unfortunately. We're in, yeah. a, we're in a crazy time. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's one of those things when you talk about the 
the crisis our environment's in. I mean, that is such a wide-ranging effect, and I mean, it's even outside. I mean, so much of the U.S. has wildfires all, all the time, the worst wildfires there's ever been. I mean, you know, there's this is going to have huge effects everywhere. So, I mean, definitely Alaska's having problems too, I'm sure. So, mm -hmm. unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the the science that science fiction that's interesting me right now would, would be dealing with um, those sort of issues. Yeah, I feel like actually a lot of contemporary speculative fiction is starting to grapple with that. Or when you're talking about imagining the future, a lot of them deal with climate crisis stuff because... I think as, and I actually talked to Steve about this when I talked to him for God is Not Willing, which obviously has that vein of talking about climate. Um, I, I just think it's, you know, it's on people's mind and whatever's going on in authors' lives kind of end up getting reflected in their work. So I think it's kind of natural that you end up seeing it in that. Hmm, that's true. Have either of you guys read the Tough Voyaging, the George R. R. Martin uh, tough. I forget what his last name is, but he he's kind of like a it's a science fiction thing, and he and but it deals with all kinds of philosophy and stuff. And he goes around. He has this like arc ship, and he can make you know biological stuff from his computer records that they have of all these things. And but you know it's like grappling with the same kinds of problems that people have here in overpopulation. It's a great thing, and just kind of reminded me of that oh, one. No, I I haven't read that. Have you considered doing a George R. R. Martin and maybe just ghosting this series to just go work on some other uh, stuff? You know? <laughs> Is that a request? <laughs> I'm just saying you can think about it. Peter, I mean, it seems stop. like it seems like he's owning a movie theater, writing comics, having a great time. You know, so it seems like you know could be stress stress free. Go work on some other projects. You know, true enough. Yeah, think about uh, it. It's all a, a life journey. He's doing his own thing, huh? and I suppose you could say, well, he's earned it, and. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, I, 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 I'm mostly joking. Honestly, I feel like he wrote five great books, and he wrote some other good, interesting stuff too. You know, if he wants to go do that, God bless him. That's if he's if he's maybe got the writing bug out of his system. I don't yeah. know, but if if you do, you go and uh, do something else. Whatever. I, I, he's he's another human. I got to respect that. You know, and I'm still enjoying it, and still so you know, I only do it as long as I personally enjoy. Uh, what's what's appearing on the page and uh, am into it and laughing or crying uh, with it. Yeah, so that uh, that brings me a question I had. When you get to the end of this list of s stuff, so to speak, you and Steve split up. Like, do you think you'll move on, or do you think have you reached the end of that list? Do you, would you move on to some of this science fiction stuff? Like, yeah, um, I think so. Um, there's more more stories to tell. Um, after this series, I don't know. I don't really see much more unless we can, unless we put our heads together and decide we have to do X or Y. Uh, probably be um, something else, another another project. Interesting. So you would think maybe after this path the ascendancy wraps up, you'd look elsewhere. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, unless people are saying, "Well, there's so much more to do up in the north of Ganabagas or, or whatever," and uh, which is sure. true, but uh, it would have to be a very compelling story. <laughs> Mm. that also feels like news in a way you know and you'll have 12 big books too so it'll be perfect i don't know where i'm gonna squeeze yeah. them in but we're gonna figure it out yeah. well 12 not so big books but <laughs> yeah, yeah. a sale is pretty big but this is one of those things like i was reading a book the i mean just like when you're the book of the fallen books are just so absurdly long it's like i don't know 
it it, it just kind of twists your point of view because a sale is maybe as a sale. What show it? Let's I gotta see it. show it just for the people who it's didn't see it on the last podcast. This is why we want the reprint. That is an epic, epic. That's what you want on your bookshelves. Nice, such a I, sweet cover. I just love good old fashioned fantasy art. You know, I know it's like you know it's all driven by publishing and what sells, but you know the modern fantasy art style. I'm just like. You know, the 70s, 80s of, like, just weird dudes on stuff is way more, I don't know, there's something campy and charming I find about it, you know? Well, you know, you're you're talking to someone who may, may have gotten into it just because of the Frazetta covers. I mean, 100%. I'm, I'm just a Frazetta fan. I really love his, love his stuff. When I saw it on those covers, it was just magnificent. Uh, and I think those are just great evocative covers not just of, the, of uh, say an event in that occurs in the book but more mm. of the ethos and the spirit of what's the author's trying to get across no and just like a sense of i don't know sense of adventure and fantasy it's like that's kind of what's being sold in a sense and that's what i love you know i think steve and i have been very lucky i think though, overall and we've got uh, really i'm uh, we're both very pleased with our covers and Especially me, I'm very happy with them. I think they're great. Uh, so I've been very lucky, I think, in my cover art. I don't know if you ever do this, but there's like a lot of just fan art for Malazan stuff, and I highly recommend just really Googling cool that because there's so much like epic fan art from a lot of really, really talented people. You know, I, I don't, and, and maybe I should, but I'm also worried about being influenced a little bit by, by I what I that. see. Yeah. So I, it's like, well, for now, I just, I won't go there. Uh, I, I do get that because I'm sure in your mind, you have a version of these things that maybe is best left in a glass box in, in the under the cupboard, you know? Yeah, and, you know, and it's shared maybe by a lot of things. Maybe it's similar to other things, but that's because it comes out of my life experience. And so other people mm. share that experience, you know, growing up and reading the same fantasy series I read. Speaking of reading fantasy growing up, um, what 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 type of who would you cite as the big influences for you when it comes to writing this type of stuff? Uh, growing up, uh, when I was mm. younger, I think I've uh, come clean in in my uh, deep readership in Moorcock, <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, and uh, but the really I think the biggest name for me would be Howard. Um, mm. A big Howard fan. Uh, and still am. It's, his work has been sort of diluted by later editing, and and uh, sort of some, some some very questionable things were done to his work by later hands. Mm. But if you ignore all that and try and get to the original stories before they've been messed with and watered down and changed, the there there's a lot of power there. Yeah, we got to hook you up with Raph. Raph's a big Howard fan. Mm. And you know uh, Fritz Lieber, uh, the um, tales of. Fafford and the Grey Mouse are just wonderful for their, the, there's that humor component right there uh, coming through. And again, a duo, a, a wonderful duo, Fafford and the Grey Mouse. The duos are the best. What do you mean watering down? I'm very curious. I mean, I haven't read much Howard, but I'm just curious on this, like, I guess, sub, you know, a little sub subject. Oh, you know? yeah. Well, it's, it's very um, nasty. I mean, uh, <clears throat> a couple of later authors decided that they could uh, posthumously abridge and and uh, edit his work and and they sort of took that and made up even in, made up in whole stories out of cloth and marketed them as howard stories 
done by them. And, mm -hmm. and, and so it's, it became difficult to, to sort of sort out you know, whose voice you were, you were um, listening to when, when you were reading these, this broader uh, body of um, Haborian work. Do you ever read any of that, Escar? No. I came into reading very late in life. I was like very much spreadsheet focused and like I didn't have a grasp of what I was missing out on. And um, so I was a late bloomer when it came to reading. Late bloomer and into fantasy, late comer. Yeah. Although I always liked comic books and Greek mythology as like a little kid. So it seems like a natural fit. But for some reason, I kind of drank the Kool-Aid that like you should be um, – like economically focused instead of not wasting time uh, reading for enjoyment. Yeah, well, that, those were my sort of you know teenage stuff, and and then when I met Steve, uh, he I had come into Cook as well, Glenn Cook's work, mm -hmm. and I handed him um, the White Rose or the the first of the series, The Black Company, I think the very mm -hmm. first, and uh, then he and he handed me, uh, I think he did. Tim Cook's uh, drawing of the dark. Uh, mm. And so we just sort of mutually sort of established our aesthetic by that cross fertilization right there. Uh, and those, those two books are very foundational, I think to, to Malaz and, yeah, man, I think there's a really powerful connection you can share when you are sharing stories, books, movies, whatever it is you love with someone. You know, I think there's a way you can communicate through both understanding or kind of having the same experience through a, a novel or something that like, I don't know. Obviously, I feel like novels can express ideas that you can't say in a single sentence. Right. That's kind of the whole point in a sense. And like, I think, I don't know, there's something powerful there. Sure. And, and we just happened to click on that. You know, everything was we agreed on so much. So it was, you know, it was wonderful to find someone who felt the same way about the, the genre and we could compare readings and, and talk about what we loved about the genre and <clears throat> what spoke to us in it and uh, what both of us wanted to be writers. And we talked about what we wanted to do with it. And that was sort of the beginning. Yeah. That's why I started awesome. a YouTube channel, man. I wanted to like talk to someone about these amazing Malazan books that nobody, I couldn't talk anyone into like reading. Cause they were like, Oh, it's too, it's too big. So I totally vibe with that. It's just like, it makes it something to have a like, well, here, here, and here you are with your channel and, and uh, a community. And that's just wonderful. I think that's great. This online community sharing um, that's so love. Um, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's always awesome when you connect with someone over a book and then you can, you know, especially I feel like in fantasy books when you're like so often like squirreled away in your room reading a super long book about a made up place and then you're like walk outside and everyone's doing other stuff with their day and you're like, I was just in a whole other room, you know, and then when you can connect with someone about it, there's a huge catharsis. So I totally, you know, vibe. Um I am curious, though, so you're connecting with Steve, you're talking about things you like about these books and, and you know, maybe the genre in general. Was there stuff you clashed about, stuff you disagreed about, and, and like, values you didn't share that you, that were in conflict, so to speak? Very little. We were in, in great agreement, mostly, on, on the mm -hmm. uh, foundational philosophies and themes, and very little clash about things. Um I don't know if he remembers, but there was one thing that we, we did really clash over in a screenplay. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it was, he wanted to have it. We were on the, these mer the mercenaries, um, Black Dog Blues. It was, and so we were with uh, the sappers on the river crossing. 
uh, and he wanted to have a, I think a uh, hand sort of come up out of the water with a, a sword. They they miss it. They they don't <laughs> don't see it. They go right by it, <laughs> uh, or something like that. And I thought, no, no, I don't. That's too Arthurian. I don't want to import any of the Arthurian ethos in into the world. I thought that was too much of a, a wide door. And he said, no, it's just a little one-off, just a joke. Like he just throws in these little things all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that one, I said, I don't like that one. And so we just went back and forth for some time on that. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's about the only surreal major thing I can think of as far as a, a, a disagreement goes. It's not surprising though. I feel like Steve often has like one-off gags that are just like, and then out, you know. Uh, but you know, for treatment of larger things like characters, I'm, I've always just loved what he's done with uh, mine. And then I pick one up, up, one of his, and and he has like he's like just waiting. He says, "I want to see what you do with this character and take them in a whole different direction from the one from before." And uh, and he, I'm I'm trying to surprise him actually with, with mm. it, and vice versa. Now, has there ever been a time where Steve's like, you know, you do something with Lady Envy, you do something with yada yada. And then there's a, a sense of that you surprised him in like a bad way or in a way that like you feel is discordant or I'm curious about that. No, well, not that he's uh, con- uh, confessed to, you know, or, or mm-hmm. I to to him. Uh, it's always been very uh, more like, oh, I really like this. I really like that. I'm, I really appreciate it. And uh, vice versa. And he really appreciates. I mean, I know, I mean, uh, crop, for example, you know, how can I can't do his crop? You know, I'll do my mm. crop. Uh, sure. And it's the same in spirit, and and mm. and in character history, but it's not his. It's different. You know, there'll always that'll always be the case. But he's never had a problem with with um, my versions of, of his prior characters and uh, and vice versa. What about like elaborating? Because like Tay Shren is not really. You never see Tayshran that much in on the Book of the Fallen side, and you never get a POV, I guess, of him from you. But you at least like I don't know. I feel like there's more. I, I wouldn't say you make him necessarily likable, but you at least understand him better. He's not just this kind of referred to character and kind of the all that complexity. Is it fun to try and like take something like that where it's just, there's just like a tiny little snippet and then kind of blow it up? Well, yeah, I think it's a, a great authorial point of view challenge to take a character who is, you know, universally disliked or, or who is a very, dis, you know, an unlikable person and then get into them and see why they are the way they are and why they tick that way and then be able to make them sympathetic to the reader. And that's, that's a real challenge. And uh, if you can pull that off, I think you've really done something amazing. And uh, I would hope to be able to, to to pull that off. Yeah, no, sympathetic is a great word. Yeah, because it's not like you're like, yeah, I want to go out and get a beer with Tay Shren after that. But like, no, you definitely like kind of develop that empathy and kind of get to put yourself in that shoe a little bit better and, and have a, a greater understanding. So, yeah, I think so. It also feels like an authorial challenge just from knowing that, you know, when someone picks up this book, they've read a few other books and they have some preconceived notion of who Krupp is and the way Krupp's written, and like what the feel of that character is. So it feels like it's another thing to be able to balance that expectation and to also have them understand that like 
this is Krupp. It is the same person, but like it's a kind of different version. And, and in a, I don't know. It seems like a kind of difficult needle threat. Mm. Well, it was very intimidating. I mean, I was very, very. I imagine. I was very hesitant. Uh, and I spoke that to, to Stephen. And he said, oh, no, don't worry about it. Just go for it. And, and I knew that people, some people might not like that. Uh, but that's them. You know, they, if, if they choose to be that way as readers with, you know, blinkers then um, then they, they can do that, and that's their choice. Has there been a character that you've thought about taking on that you didn't because you just thought it wasn't going to be the right choice? I, I never considered um, taking on, say, Anna Manderas. I, mm. uh, I, I never would, and, and I don't have any need to, but nor would I. I think it's just too, too much there, too, too big to step into. So far, no need has arisen. But if if it did, you know, then I would if it, if it was necessary for the story. Iskar, you have any uh, final questions or something? No, I mean, I feel like we've so monopolized your more than generous time already. I'm like looking through my list. I could talk all day long, obviously, and I have like a million more questions. <laughs> but um, no, you've been you've been so generous, and and it's been actually just so much fun too. And and you've dropped some absolute bombshells that I know everyone's going to be thirsting and salivating over. So. Yeah, we we got the deep lore, or not not I don't know, t- titillating lore earlier, and then this f- forge of the high mage gonna be very exciting. So that's gonna come out this year. Is that what we're thinking at? You know, maybe this summer ish, maybe this fall ish. I hope so, but um, because of the delays it got, it's probably in the back of the queue. So. We'll see. So no, so no date assigned. No date assigned. No, I can't speak to that. Uh, but we can go go harass Bantam and Tor. <laughs> Get on it, people! Keyboard warriors, yeah, unite! Like, give me, give me a date! Give me a date! And yeah. <laughs> um, well, just one of those things, you know. Like, I just feel like every few months, someone's like, "There's a random date on Amazon." It's like confirmed, and I'm like, "I don't know, guys. I feel like this is." It can change. Know, yeah, wishful yeah. thinking. So they, yeah. They'll do what they want there and stick it on. This is going to be good. We're excited. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's um, been great. Uh, thank you for inviting me, and uh, I just love the chance to, to talk about uh, Malaz and the books, of course. And it's yeah, great please. to talk with you guys. I've been watching your videos and uh, really enjoying your work, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. No, so much so fun. Much. So much fun. Really enjoyed it. And honestly, I've watched all your interviews, and I think this one's just an extra addition. Everyone's going to be so pumped, and I, I can't wait to just watch it as a viewer because you, you you rocked it, and it was absolutely so much fun. And thanks to Pete for setting it up. Wow. I'm, I'm glad that the podcast could have this mini series talk about these six books and then be able to talk to him is a treat. So, all right. Well, that'll be all for us today. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye.